worship. And uh, I'm for Dean and, and uh, just the, the joy that he brings to our church just because of the gift that he is, not just through what he does, which are many and wonderful things, but just the, uh, the gift of his person and the way that he reflects your character. And we bless him, Lord, just to speak, Lord, that you would speak through him today, that you would open our hearts to receive, empower him as he speaks, empower us as we listen. Holy Spirit, we say come in Jesus' name. Okay. Um, prayer and suffering, great topic. It'll be a nice, light morning. Hopefully it won't be too bad. Um, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and his prayer and the disciples and how they interacted with him. And we're going to start with a story, because who doesn't like a story? So here's a picture of not me. Um, that's a picture of Tour de France, actually. But when I was um, 17, 18, I cycled a lot. I used to race quite a bit. And I, I was not bad at it, so I ended up in, a, in an international stage race in Quebec called Tour de l'Abitibi. So same idea as Tour de France, except much, much smaller. It was a week long. We only rode 100K a day, not 300. But um, if you know anything about road cycling, it's all about the, the wind. So if you're in a pack, if you're in the middle of a pack, there's no wind. So it's like way easier for you than if you're at the front of the pack or if you're off the back of the pack by yourself, that's really a bad scenario. Um, so all of the tactics, or a lot of the tactics around road racing involve that. Um, so one particular race in this tour, I was not doing well. I was off the back. So I was, the pack was ahead of me. I was riding by myself, which is a bad scenario um, because your time... You know, you get time for each day. So it's your time for the overall tour that matters. So if you lose five minutes in a day, which isn't that hard to do if you're behind riding by yourself, that might be it. Like, you'll never catch up again. So I was trying my best to catch up to the pack riding by myself. And um, one of the cool things about this race is people come to watch it. A lot of amateur cycling, especially in northern Ontario, there are no spectators. So this tour lab activity, there's a lot of people watching, and they're actually cheering. And the cool thing is that they would cheer for me. And I mean, <laughs> okay, think about this. I don't have a hope of winning this race, really. My goal is just to finish in the pack and do okay. And they, so you're not, you could easily just write me off as just some guy or whatever. He's not going to do well. But the fans knew well enough that I was hurting really bad, and that's why I was there. So they understood my suffering, and they cheered for me in the midst of it. They supported me. That was a really cool experience, you know, having streets lined with people cheering for you. That was really cool. 
So that's suffering. We're going to talk about uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So before our passage is the Last Supper, which you know all about, Jesus hanging out with his disciples, having a Passover meal. And then they go to Mount Olives, where they often went in the evening to pray and to, well, Jesus prayed anyways. So this was kind of a common occurrence. And then after that, Jesus gets rested, and that's the beginning of the, the end for Jesus, the whole, you know, ending up on the cross, all that. So this particular scene, Jesus in the garden, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's very, very similar in each of them. Today we'll be looking at Matthew's version. And I'll read it just so it gets recorded. Uh, Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Not Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So we're going to look at this in a little more detail. Um, First of all, how Jesus interacts with his disciples. So he asks them to sit and keep watch with me. Now, the Greek word for watch is Grigoriti, not good at Greek, something like that. Um, And it's got this sense of actively watching, giving strict attention to or being cautious. So it's not like, you know, kicking back on the couch watching TV. It's more like um, if you have a small child and you're on a dock by water, you're watching them so that they don't die. It's more that kind of watching. So that's what Jesus is asking here. And they don't do it very well. They fall asleep. So Jesus reprimands them for sleeping and tells them to watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the third time, he comes back to them and they're asleep. So he just kind of rolls his eyes at them and and walks away. Luke says that the disciples are exhausted from sorrow, but um, to me it doesn't seem like these disciples really know what's going on at this point. They just see Jesus praying like he always does, maybe a little more 
passionately than usual, but they don't really know what's coming. So the disciples, yeah, kind of oblivious. They don't realize what an important moment in Jesus' life this is, and therefore they're not really there supporting him because Jesus often prayed there. So they fell asleep, and Jesus consequently is left alone in his suffering. Does that work? There's a lot of, yeah, you can kind of see that. Um, a lot of pictures of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of them don't look like he's suffering at all. This one, I think, looks pretty accurate, that he seems to be suffering quite a bit. Um, it's dark. I think it kind of captures what was going on. So Jesus in the garden. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So really, um, it's really hard to portray. I mean, he is extremely upset. Like, it's very hard to put into words just how sorrowful and overwhelmed he is feeling at this point. And this really is a pivotal moment for Jesus because this is kind of where he decides that he's going through with dying on the cross, dying for us. This is, it's why he came to earth, but it was, it's always been his choice to do it or not. There's this, um, Jesus is human and God. So this really reveals the human side of him where he's, not wanting to suffer, really, because who wants to? And, and he really has to make the decision here to do it or not. Um, and it's a big deal. I mean, he's taking on the sins of the world and suffering for them. It's not just, you know, kind of a big deal. So he prays, and it's the same prayer, more or less, three times. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So asking, asking God to, you know, relieve me from this. I don't want to do this, but if I have to, I will. And again, my Father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And a third time, the same thing. Luke 22 tells us an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him during this prayer. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So quite a, a lot of suffering here, a lot of difficult moment. So why did Jesus suffer? Well, there's the suffering in the garden, and there's suffering that comes after the garden. And we'll do a quick review here. Christianity 101, God is holy, God is good, God is just. People are not. So because of that, we deserve to suffer for our sins, and our sins put a barrier between us and a holy God. So Jesus fulfills God's justice by suffering and dying for our sins, and that lets us be in relationship with God. Thank you, Jesus. That's a good deal for us. But... It shows the humanity of Jesus, as I mentioned. When he's in the garden here, he's very human. He doesn't seem to be a victorious God as much as a suffering human. 
And what's really cool about this is he can relate to our suffering, because all of us suffer in many different ways. That's just part of life. And Jesus has been there, so he understands. And he's also our example in how we should act when we're in a place of suffering. We bring it to God. We can ask to be spared the suffering, but ultimately we need to submit to what God wants. That's the way forward. So why do we suffer? Well, we're not suffering for the sins of the world like Jesus did, but it is an evil world, and thanks to Adam and Eve, it's all tainted by sin, and there's a lot of bad stuff that happens. So we suffer for our own sins. We suffer because other people sin. We suffer because Satan wants us to, and he's evil. So all sorts of reasons. God allows suffering so we might grow. Now think about that. That's a very uncomfortable concept because we don't want that. We want God to just make our lives pleasant and nice and happy. But he doesn't seem to. He seems to allow suffering. And there's this whole idea. Sanctification is the process where we become more like Jesus, where we... Um, as we, we grow as people, we, we become more loving, more caring. And ideally, as Christians, that's what our life is. It's the trajectory of sanctification. And suffering can be a very important part of this. If we approach it with the right attitude and let God work in us, we can grow quite a bit through suffering where we might not have otherwise. So James 1 um, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So suffering is not meaningless. It's a very important point because it often feels like it is. There's many things we can learn from suffering. It can awaken us to reality, it can, which it can show us our sins. It reminds us that we're frail, that we will die, and that we are empty away from God, which is all kind of bleak, but it's good because it helps us turn to God. It also tests us. It reveals who we really are to ourselves and to God. It disciplines us. We can learn humility, and we can learn to trust God through suffering. And it gives us an opportunity to love God better, to give God glory in the midst of it. And there's this weird sense where our suffering is kind of an echo of Jesus' suffering. So we're, in a way, participating in the suffering that Jesus endured. First Peter 4.12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So it has eternal significance, our suffering. So, The Martian. Rose and I watched this movie a couple weeks ago. And uh, so Matt Damon playing Mark Watney, 
he gets, he is on Mars with a team of people and through some events gets left behind. And it's a really bad situation because Mars is really far away. So it's gonna be a couple of years really before anyone can get back to him. And he only has enough food for I think 90 days or four years. Thank you, Kenny. Um, so there's cool things about this. I mean, I like space movies, so it was cool anyways. But um, his reaction is interesting because what he does is he assesses the situation. He sits down and realizes, you know, this really sucks. He thinks about how much food he has, how much air he has, what's going to kill him, and kind of comes to terms with the fact that this is a bad situation. Um, and he accepts that. He doesn't fight it, he doesn't dwell in sorrow, and then he works towards solutions to the problems he's thought of, which is pretty good, pretty good approach, really. Um, of course, and it is an American movie, so you know, it's kind of individualistic, it's victorious, it's the whole idea where no matter what comes our way, we can always try, and given whatever odds they are against us, we can always overcome them which, you know, is not real life often. But it's a good movie. Um, real life often is more, um, you know, we tell our kids they can be whatever they want, and that's not really true. I don't, I mean, it's true to a point. I don't want to say here heresy here, but I wanted to be a professional cyclist, you know? I did, but I had the wrong parents. I had the wrong genes. I. I, I didn't have, my body could not do it. I just did not have the right body for it. And it wasn't for lack of trying. It was just, I couldn't do whatever I wanted. Real life doesn't always work that way. Anyway, what is important is how we respond to the suffering. So do we fight it? There's a sense, I mean, I'm, no. There's a sense where you can just kind of pretend it's not there and just push through and carry on and don't even really give the suffering room in your life at all. And that's not very healthy. Or we can just give up, go like, this is what it is. It sucks, oh well. That's kind of what Eeyore is like. It's kind of what I'm like. That's my, my default is to just kind of carry on, struggle through, or we can accept it. And I don't mean accept it like giving up accept it, but, it, but realistically, just be, you know, this is what it is. This is my lot in life. What am I going to do now? And if we do that, then we can move forward. We can pray about it. We can partner with God. And this may lead to a solution but it may not. God is mysterious. He doesn't always fix everything for us. In any case, this is what Jesus did. He, bringed, he brought his suffering to God and submitted to God's will. So that's what we're trying to do. And fasting is an important part of prayer, not to be forgotten. If you really want to draw close to God and, and want to um, 
break through some barriers when he's feeling distant. Fasting is not about a bad approach for that. Okay. Yeah, so basically we can either turn to God in our despair or turn away from him. And if you're in denial or you're fighting it, then it's pretty hard to turn to God in the midst of it. So it starts with accepting it. And God wants to teach us something through our suffering. So if we just fight it, we might never learn it. Yeah, talked about that. Suffering. You have to, the world, the uh, worldly ethics, a lot of people in the world live for the moment and live for their lifetime only. There's no sense of anything beyond that. And from that perspective, suffering is really a bad thing. And it's something really you should avoid because it's, it serves no purpose other than just making your life miserable. And if you're going to die, then if you're just going to die, then your lifetime should be as pleasurable as possible, right? Whereas we're saying kind of the opposite here, that suffering has an eternal purpose that goes way beyond our lifetime. So it's not something that we really need to avoid as much as it's unpleasant, but we need to embrace and learn from it, which is way easier to say than to do. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but is what is unseen is eternal. So it's a whole different way of viewing our lives. That they, there is something beyond what we're living right now. This is all temporary. And what about community? So in the midst of suffering, we'll, we'll change perspective here. Say you're not the person suffering, but say you're someone trying to support that person. What about that? Well, the disciples did a horrible job of supporting Jesus. They slept. They didn't interact at all. Um, if you remember the book of Job, um, Job loses everything. He's suffering greatly. His friends come alongside him. They hang out with him for like a week which is a good thing. They're with him. They start out really well, but then they start to criticize him. And most of the book of Job is his friends criticizing him for, well, you must have done something wrong. That's why you're suffering. And Job's like, I didn't do that. So they, in the end, they weren't really very helpful. So we want to do better than that. Because suffering is very, it's a very isolating experience. And it's very hard to engage in the pain that someone else is in. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to enter into someone else's pain because it's unpleasant. So Frederick Buchner is a theologian, Anglican priest, I believe Anglican. I've read, I like the way he writes. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here. This is, he's, he's got a friend who is 
sick, dying actually, and he's visiting him in the hospital room. And um, this is some of the things he says when he's, he's in the hospital room with his friends. We cannot make ourselves known to each other. We are not healed and forgiven by each other's presence. With words as valueless as poker chips, we play games whose object is to keep us from seeing each other's cards. Chit-chat games in which how are you means don't tell me who you are, and I'm alone and scared becomes fine, thanks. Games where the players create the illusion of being in the same room, but where the reality of it is that each is alone inside a skin in that room. Like submarines at the bottom of the sea, blind man's bluff games where everyone is blind. It's just a real good uh, description of how we can be with someone but not be with them at all. And and how hard it can be to connect sometimes. And we want to try to do that. So a few steps to being a good friend. Listen. So listen to whoever you're with. Be present. Try to be present with them. Try to connect with them. Pray with them. Um, But... If a person is suffering a lot, you need to know um, it's important to have your own limits if you're supporting someone. And I know for me, part of the reason that I don't connect is I'm too scared of getting sucked in and never escaping the suffering and the sorrow of the other person. So it's important to have a limit that you have made for yourself before you even go. So you, if you're visiting someone in the hospital, you say, well, okay, I'm staying half an hour. I can do that. I can do half an hour. And by putting that limit, you allow yourself to be more there during the time you're there because you're not so worried about leaving. So limits are important. A lot harder if you're living with someone who's suffering. Um, And the other thing is suffering is often long-term, so you kind of have to expect things aren't going to get better right away. So, and, And a lot of patience, a lot of grace is required when you're trying to support one someone who's suffering. And a lot of prayer. The... Uh, the series that we're currently in is partnering with God through prayer. So, like I've said before, what we want to do in the midst of suffering is be aware of the problem, accept what it is, and then bring it to God. So we want to have a conversation with God about what's going on and, and let him speak to us about it. The Psalms are really good for this. Um, a lot of the psalms start with suffering or complaints. They're a good example of how we can talk to God. I try to read part of a psalm every day as part of my spiritual discipline. I think it's a very useful thing to do. And remember, suffering is not our identity. It's real easy to get so wrapped up in 
your situation that you forget who you are. So you are not, you know, you're not a cancer patient. You're not a car accident victim. You are a child of God who is in this situation. And we need to try to see suffering as an opportunity for growth, which admittedly can be really hard. I've spoken about all of this already. There's a sense in which our suffering is part of Jesus' suffering. So even if you're feeling alone because your friends aren't around you, you know Jesus has been there. And you know there's been a lot of other people in the world, a lot of other Christians who have suffered as well. So in a sense, you're part of this larger unseen community. So you're never actually alone. Um, Psalm 77. I am going to close by reading Psalm 77 because I think it kind of encompasses all this nicely. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated. My spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night when my heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. So let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that you have been there. That no matter what we're going through, you've been there. And you are leading the way for us through it. So I pray you would help us in the midst of our difficulties to turn to you and that you would be real and present to us. I pray that you would help us to, um, if we see suffering around us, to not be afraid to engage, to see people and not illness, to see people as your children. So I just pray for your grace in the midst of all this. Amen. So for our visitors, I'm Dean's wife. 
And um, I would just like to share for a moment how the suffering um, God uses for his good. And so uh, I don't want to dwell on it, but just very briefly, almost three years ago, I had a car accident that caused me a moderate traumatic brain injury, which has radically altered our lives. So Dean and I really understand suffering. Um, we've had, obviously, financial suffering, but I have some personality changes. Um, I don't cope well with stress. Um, I just really, our, our whole relationship has really changed. And so in the midst of all of this, you know, you, the first year you spend, as Psalm 7 to 9, I think it was, asking all those questions like, when am I going to see your favor again? Why aren't you healing me? Why did this happen to me? Um, really being quite angry at times. And... Um, as you move through your injury for me or illness for other people, uh, whether it be depression or cancer or brain injury, what isolation, whatever you're dealing with, God, if you, it says in the word, if you submit yourself to the Lord, then you can resist the enemy and he will flee from you. And in that submission to the Lord is when you stop being the victim. Because the enemy wants you to believe you're a victim. He wants you to believe that you, you deserve this or that, um, you know, that you're worthless. I know I've felt very worthless through this whole thing. And the reasons I have felt worthless is because if you know Dean and I, I am, previous to this accident, the most capable, independent woman you've ever met in your entire life. If you said, let's do it, I'd say, okay, let's do it, and i go do it. And I had no limits. I just pushed through. I learned how to do that. I was so capable. And one of the reasons Dean married me is because of that independence. He loved that independence in me. He never had to worry about me. I would just do it. It would get done. Well, in the midst of this, it's been very in interesting because I'm completely dependent on him now. I probably couldn't live on my own. I certainly financially couldn't take care of myself. I can't do budgeting. I can't do any of those things. And Dean has had to get over himself and have a dependent wife. And he's had to stretch himself to take care of a, a dependent who's not six or eight or 10, a child, you know. He has to take care of me. So God has taken both of us to the extreme of our personalities and said, I want you to do this instead. And he's pushed us to our limits. And we've seen some really positive, beautiful changes in our relationship in the midst of this suffering. It's really, really hard. And the other thing I want to say is about our community in the midst of my suffering. Um, we've have, we have this beautiful women's group that I belong to, and we all have our issues. And God is doing something so beautiful there as we get real with each other, and we share our heart, and we cry together, and we laugh together, and we just are so intimate, and God is doing some incredible things, but we're still suffering, but he's there with us. And in the midst of that suffering, I've had Colleen, who just goes out of her way to come visit me because of my isolation. So I just really want to share with you that if you're suffering today, submit yourself to the Lord 
and he will meet you. He meets you every time in that suffering, and, and we can see that growth in the community. We can see that growth in us personally. God does amazing things when we submit ourselves to him.